0: We are back in uh, John 14, we're working through the book of John, we took a brief break to talk about uh, beating up devils, and we're back working through John, and I feel like uh, this is just a, a really critical word for us to get. It's really foundational. Um, I'm not going to be in a hurry in these next few chapters, I would rather that we go deep, and we're definitely going to go a little deep today just so you know. Um, So try and, you know, keep up. Don't daydream. Stay with me. Don't even throw in some Greek words, stuff like that. But open your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 14 so you can follow along, or we'll have the verses up here. And again, you have your notes if you want to follow. Uh, But I just, uh, I feel like God's really doing something with this understanding, and so I want us to get it. I think it's foundational for the next four chapters. So, Let's jump in by a quick review of John 13, which it's been a few weeks because that's where we took a break. So uh, we'll figure that out here. In John 13, uh, we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we remember that he gets done doing it and he he says, basically, the reason I did this is to set an example. uh, The purpose of you having authority is to serve and that's the lesson he is trying to get through. I have all authority and I just washed your feet and I want you to learn from that. So one, he's trying to get them to learn that service is the purpose of authority and two he uh, ends chapter 13 with a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you now this is new because the old commandment was uh, love your brother as yourself so Up until this time, I had to love you like I love Tony. Now, I have to love you like Jesus loves me. You understand that significantly higher, right? Uh, Jesus loves me more than I love me, which is weird but true. So he ups this commandment. But the real important thing that I want you to remember from John 13 is he's basically saying, I'm teaching you these things, I'm teaching you about authority, and about love, because I'm getting ready to go away, and when I go away, I'm going to send you out in my authority. And so, I want you to remember that he's preparing the disciples to be sent out in his authority. This is called the Last Supper, because this is the last time they're going to have supper together until the kingdom, right? And so, it makes John 14 through 17 very significant. I would say it is if, if, you know, and thank God you can read the whole Bible, but if you could only read a few chapters of the Bible, these would be them. This section occurs, it's is mostly just Jesus talking, and it occurs between the Last Supper and his arrest before he goes to the cross. And so this is four chapters where Jesus is alone with his disciples saying, here's what you need to know before I go to the cross and send you with my authority. And because that has trickled down onto us to walk in the authority that Jesus has given the, the whole church, not just his disciples, then we should really pay attention to these instructions that he was using to get them ready for this. Does that make sense? So he ends in verses 36 and 37, uh, he keeps talking about going away, and Peter's had enough of that. Uh, and Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And he says, uh, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you can follow later. And he says, why can't I follow now? So I want you to hear what Peter's expressing. Peter's going, Lord, I need to know where you're going, and I need to know why I can't stay with you, because I feel like we got a good thing going on here And I'm really not willing for another entire massive paradigm change in my life. Now understand, this is the second massive paradigm change he's gone through. And we need to put ourselves in this mindset so that we really understand what's happening here. It's really easy for us, 2,000 years past the cross, to take for granted things like the presence of God that we just experienced in worship, right? Well, uh, this was not common at that time or for Peter. Peter, up until now, up until Jesus coming into Peter's life, his entire relationship with God was through the temple. You went to the temple, right? And in the temple, you had limited, veiled, literally veiled access to God. There was a veil, and God lived behind the veil, right? And you could offer sacrifices. You could talk to God. There was interaction with God. There was uh, the secret place of God where you could interact with Him in prayer. But uh, it was all at a distance. It was all limited. It was all veiled, so to speak. And uh, the big thing that we see when Jesus comes on the scene is He's teaching them what the Father's like because in this veiled relationship, they really didn't know what the Father was like. The Pharisees had it badly wrong, didn't they? And so for the first time... Peter has this huge paradigm shift where he is having physical interaction with the Son of God and seeing what God is like through the Messiah, through Jesus, through his Son. So for three years, they've had unprecedented, world-changing interaction and relationship with God, right? And now what they're hearing is we're going for another paradigm change, and in this one, I'm going away and you're going to lose the physical presence of Jesus. You can understand how Peter and the other disciples are feeling. So what's the deal? Are we going back to going to the temple? That stinks. We're going back to the veiled presence? I don't like that. I like you here. we got all these promises about the Messiah. There's things we want to accomplish. Where are you going? And why can't I stay with you? Right? And so what they don't know is he's going to introduce them to yet another better paradigm. And uh, they really don't get what it is yet. That's why there's question marks in your notes. But uh, we know what it is because we've experienced it. And they will experience it. In fact, Jesus will tell them about it in just a few minutes. We won't hear about that for a few weeks because it's in John chapter 16. It'll take us longer to get there. But on this night, they'll get to John chapter 16 in a few minutes. And Jesus will tell them, it's better that I go, because if I go, the Father will send the helper. That's the new paradigm. They're not really aware of how it's better. All they know is Jesus has been with them for three years. It's way better than temple, and he's going away, right? And so they are concerned. They are worried. And in verse 1, Jesus immediately begins to address their worries. And then he goes into things that I think we need to understand that will address all of our worries and concerns as well. Are you ready? So, in verse 1, he starts with, Let not your heart be troubled, because their hearts were troubled, because Jesus was leaving, and they didn't know what exactly that meant. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, He's saying this again in the context of them losing the comfort of having him with them. They're losing the comfort of physical proximity. You ever experienced that where you're really in the presence of God and you felt like you're confident and all of a sudden uh, you're not feeling the presence of God and you're going, what the heck? I don't know what I'm doing. All right. Well, this is that context. And he says, I get that you're worried, but what will overcome worry is faith. We always have a choice between faith and worry. And what he's saying is this, you've been believing all this time in God the Father who you've never seen, and now you've seen me, That just because I'm going away, even though you won't see me for a while, believe in me. Believe in me without seeing me, which is something we have to practice, right? Because we're in that going away for a while period of time. So he's saying, uh, you believe in God, believe also in me. And I just want to say this about uh, this passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but about faith. It is really, really easy to get our faith in outcomes. He says, believe in me. He does not say, believe in what I will do, uh, what is going to happen uh, in the future that I've told you. He says, believe in me. He gets right down to the core. It's really important that we get this. This is a simple principle that's super easy to drift from. Our faith is in Jesus. If we get our faith in outcomes, and the outcomes don't go the way we think, what happens to our faith? It doesn't go the way we think. But Jesus, who is faithful, who is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever, uh, is always worthy of our faith. And so I'm not saying we don't have faith for specific things. We do. But we make sure our faith is in Jesus, who has the option at any time to do it differently than we think, or at a different time than we think, or in a different way than we think, all of those things. And our faith cannot be shaken if it's in Him, not in outcomes, right? And so Uh, there's going to be times where we don't understand outcomes or circumstances, but there should never be a time that we don't understand Jesus and his heart towards us and his faithfulness and that we can have faith in him. I'm I'm his. I don't know what's going on right now, but I'm his. So that's the point of faith. But what I really want to spend time on is verses 2 and 3. As you can see, this is going to be the bulk of it this morning. And he says this, so remember, he's comforting them because they're worried. And he goes, don't be worried. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he starts to talk to them a little bit about this new paradigm. He goes, here's what's going to happen. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, actually, I just want to look at verse 2 first. So I read verse 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the Father's house is at least three things. And this is biblical, and I'll show you this as we go through this. All of these we find in the Bible. The Father's house is the New Jerusalem. Uh, Revelation 21, you can read all about it. There's some detail there. You can see how big it is, what color things are, what they made the pavement out of, all that stuff. Okay? Okay? But it's also Him. He is a dwelling place. The Father is the Father's house. He is a dwelling place. It is also us, biblically. We are a dwelling place. Amen. And the thing that I want you to get in this passage is most of the time, you see this read a lot at funerals and things like that. I use this when I do a funeral. And most of the time, When we read this passage, we go straight to the New Jerusalem. I have become convinced, based on the context, uh, not only of this section, but of the the three chapters ahead, that he's not talking about the New Jerusalem, or at least not the physical New Jerusalem in this passage. I think he's talking about him, the Father. I think he's talking about that house. And I want to show you that. And uh, I'm not just... Doing it because it's interesting, it changes how we approach uh, our walk with him. And so, uh, this is where it gets deep, and it gets a little interesting, but uh, try to stay with me, okay? So, he says, in my father's house are many mansions. Now, the word here for house, uh, oikia, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing the Greek right, but it's what it's like pig English. Um, so, I'm going with oikia. Uh, it literally means dwelling, or household. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this. It could be appropriate to say, you know, the house over there a couple miles away where Rachel and I live is our oikia, our dwelling. But it would also be appropriate to say that Rachel and I are an oikia. We're a household. And we have lived in three different houses over the last, I don't know, 30 years. But those are our household. And in fact, you may have someone in your household who, you know, maybe went off to college or the army or something, but you consider them a part of your household, even they don't live in the dwelling you live in. Or if I go to my parents' household, now i got to include all my brothers and sisters who live all over the country. You understand what the word household means? Or family. And so my suggestion to you this morning is that this is more what he's talking about than a literal house, and you'll see why as we go on. Uh, Keep in mind that term, oikia, Uh, we're going to see it a lot. Uh, This also, there are two passages I'm going to point out where God speaks of us through the scriptures as his household or house. In uh, Ephesians 2.19, and it's the same root word, slightly different, but it's the same root word, and it's used as household. In Ephesians 2.19, we are called the household of God. Family of God. In Hebrews 3.6, we are called the house of God, right? So this is getting obviously uh, a little strange because we're talking about, you know, we start going, are we talking about physical buildings? Are we talking about metaphor? Are we talking about literal spiritual places? And yes, we're talking about all those things and we'll try and figure out what that means. And then as we go on, so in our father's house, Household, family, are in my translation says many mansions. Yours might say many dwellings. It's literally dwellings, but if uh, the Greek word is "monē," meaning place to abide. All right. Now, in case you think this is restricted to literally mansion, uh, I think it just means a place to abide. And the reason I think that is, uh, we're going to obviously not cover this today. Um, but if you skip down in this chapter to verse 23, you, we read, um, if anyone loves me, this is Jesus talking, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, the father and Jesus, will come to him and make our money with him. It's the exact same word. So we, I don't think he's saying we're going to build a mansion and come live with you in a mansion on your street. I think he's saying something else. You following me? So it's the exact same word. It's the exact same concept. We're going to come and make our household, our dwelling place, the place we abide with him. Of course, we know that he does that through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, uh, which we'll talk about more as we go through this. So to sum all this up, here's Tony's translation in the bold here. It could uh, absolutely be translated this way and do no violence to the Greek. I'm not twisting, I'm not shoehorning anything in. It could be translated this way. In my father's family are many places to abide. Right? That's all he's saying. In in dad's house, there's a lot of places for people. In my father's family are many places to abide. I go, and where he's going is to the cross at this point, to make a place for you, and the parentheses are added by me, in the Father. That is what I believe this passage is saying. Let me read that again because we've got to get this. This is kind of big. In my Father's family are many places to abide. I go to the cross to make a place for you in the Father. The Father's the house. I'm going to make a place for you to be able to abide in him just like I've been abiding in him his, my entire existence, right? And that's what I think he's saying. And it lines up with Ephesians 1.6, which we quote a lot, which says uh, that he has made us accepted in the beloved. The beloved is this incredible unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who have dwelt together for time infinite in this incredible love and this oneness that we can really honestly not fathom, or not, we're trying to fathom it. And he's going, you've been accepted into that. That's the house. The house is the Godhead. The house is the Father, That's good. or the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit have dwelt for eternity. And he's going, because of the cross, I'm going to make a way for you to be invited in to this fellowship. This place of dwelling, right? This uh, uh, place to abide, if we choose to abide there. are going to see abide a lot as we go through these following chapters, a lot in chapter 15. Now, so remember, Peter is used to, and all the disciples are used to, a limited veiled access to God. What is the significance of the torn veil, and when does that happen? You guys remember? Cross. At the cross, when Jesus makes a way for us, makes a place for us in the Father, the veil is torn in two. The veil was what separated the Holy of Holies. It's just a blatant expression of access. Everybody who wants to now, I have torn the veil. I have made a way. I have made a place for you and the Father. You can come right on in to the Holy of Holies, and enter into the Father's house. It won't kill you anymore because I've made you righteous by the blood of Jesus. Like it used to kill anyone who tried it without, you know, the once a year and doing it just right. You with me? Basic stuff. But it changes this passage. It changes the way we look at this passage. He's not saying, hey, don't worry, I'm building you a nice place to retire. He's saying, I'm going to make a way for you to live with us in the godhead. Now, remember Paul expresses this in 1 Corinthians 3:16 and he says, "Don't you know that you're the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you?" Oikio, same word, dwells in you. The Holy Spirit of God has made you a dwelling place. So, uh, this is the significance of this passage that he has made a way for us to dwell in him and for him to dwell in us. Isn't this exciting? Now, I feel like it's simple to get that, but it's not simple to get that, that we need to ponder this. I want to encourage you. I feel like God's just drawing me. As I got done preparing this teaching, I was just sitting and praying and meditating on it. The best way I can describe it is I feel like I'm Looking out over a vast land and realizing, I've only explored a little bit of this. And I'm being invited in deeper. And, and that's what it feels like to me. I don't think we get what it means uh, to be invited into this oneness with the Trinity. So, uh, But I want to. Anyway, uh, let's continue. So he's telling them, uh, I'm going to my father." Uh, I'm sorry, in my Father's family are many places to abide. I'm going to the cross to make a way for you to be in the Father. And what he's talking about here, again, we know uh, that he's going to tell us about the helper, the indwelling Holy Spirit in, in passages in the future. He's talking about the new paradigm of the indwelling Spirit that he has been speaking of. I get that they don't understand this yet because honestly, for them, coming from where they've come from, it's, it's really just too wonderful uh, to grasp. It's kind of like a deal that's too good to be true. We've been doing this veil thing and God's going to come live in us and we're going to be the temple now. Are you kidding? What's the catch? And you're going to do what? It's all because of what you do on the cross. I don't do anything. This is free. Show me the fine print. This is hard to grasp, right? But it is. It's what he's been talking about. Uh, Just want to do a quick review of all of John where he's talked about this just to show you. This is where he's been headed all along. This is what he's preparing him for. In John 1, we see Jesus identified as the one who gives the Holy Spirit. In John 3, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit. has to happen. So he's got to make a way for that to happen. In John 4, he says the Father is looking for people to worship him in Spirit. In John 6, he's saying things that are offending them, making them go away, eat my flesh, drink my blood, stuff like that. And he says, hey, guys, the spirit gives life. It's the spirit that gives life. You got to hear that these words are spirit. And then my favorite in John 7, he just outright promises the Holy Spirit. On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me uh, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Couldn't be any clearer. And so this is the culmination of that. And so he's telling them, don't be worried. I'm going to the cross to make a way for you to be in the father's house, in the Father." And the spirit to be in you. It's going to be good. And we're going to read more about it, obviously, as we go through these chapters. You following? And so in verse 3, he says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here, I think he's talking about the second coming, the restoration of his physical presence. So There's going to be a time where he's gone and we have faith in him, though we don't see him, there's going to be a time where he comes back and we see him. His physical presence is restored, but it's upgraded. There will be several upgrades, not the least of which uh, will get upgraded bodies. I'm really looking forward to that. Anyway, uh, let's read about this because I think in this passage, he's saying, one, I'm going to make a way for you to be in the Father. The Holy Spirit going to be with you. Two, I'm going to come back and you're gonna have this physical interaction with me again. And here's where he talks about it, or Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who were alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We all know about that, the second coming, our meeting him in the air as he comes. Um, And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. That's what he's talking about in that passage. I'm going to come back, and you're always going to be with me after that. I'm never leaving again. All right? So I don't really care. Uh, you guys can argue all you want about going up and coming down and going to heaven or heaven coming to earth or whatever. The important thing is we're with him. If he gets on a horse and goes somewhere, we are too. All right? Enough said. Okay. Now, that's not the only thing that happens. Let's talk about this upgrade for a minute. Revelation 19.7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. That made herself ready thing is significant. I want you to see that this time between the first coming and the second coming, he's not just up there, you know, building houses. Like, uh, I mean, seriously, it took him six days to make the earth. He doesn't need this much time. He's done. (laughs) Houses are all taken care of, right? He just goes, house, house, house. It's not what he's doing. This time isn't for him to go, when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, again, I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you to be in the Father, not I'm going to heaven to build houses, okay? It's for us to be prepared to be his bride. That's part of the upgrade. Yeah, we get new bodies. That's a significant upgrade, but we get an upgraded relationship. Now, uh, Rachel and I now married, is a significant upgrade in our relationship from Rachel and I as friends. In a lot of ways, not just the one you're thinking of. It's a really big upgrade. She's a full partner. I'm a full partner. We're in this together. God doesn't want us to just be servants or concubines or whatever. He wants us to be full partners. And so, He has prepared this time for us to be in preparation to be the wife of God, Hallelujah. the helpmeet of God, the full partner of God, in whatever He does for the rest of eternity. right? And so that's going on, and uh, it's important that we understand that we're in a time of preparation for that. Now, uh, I still want to hone in on this dwelling thing, so we'll come back to that, but let's look at verses four through six, because they're interesting. Uh, Jesus says, uh, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And I, and I think he's going, you really, you, you know, you don't think you know, but you know where I'm going and the way you know. And Thomas jumps right in and says, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is pretty simple, but let's break it down. Jesus says, you know where I'm going and you know how to get there. And they say, nope, we really don't, right? And so he explains it to them. He says, Jesus is the way. That's how to get there. He starts with how to get there. It's that simple. Jesus is the only way to get there. In him, the dwelling place, okay? And then he says, the where is not, he didn't say, uh, no one comes to the new Jerusalem except through me. No one comes to heaven except through me. The where is the Father. And again, I refer you back to in my Father's family or many places to abide, I'm going to the cross to make a place for you in him, Amen. in the Father. Yes. That's where. So he's saying, I'm the way, the Father's where we're going. And in case you're struggling with that, I put six passages in there in the Chapter 14 and chapter 16 where Jesus says, I go to the Father, 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 I return to the Father, I go to the Father. It's really clear where he's going. He's not going to a place. He's going to Dad. Right? And so we need to get this, that it's all about the Father. He just keeps talking about the Father. We're going to the Father. Right? So that being said, here is where it gets really interesting. Let's take a look at the New Jerusalem, okay? Now, uh, we're going to read a couple passages out of Revelation 21 where we read about the New Jerusalem, but let's keep some things in mind. Uh, We've learned that the Father is a real house, right? And from all these words about dwelling in it, it seems like he's talking about that more than the New Jerusalem in this passage, about being in the Father, the Father being in us by the Holy Spirit, about this shared dwelling place in the Spirit, if you will, okay? And we know that we're a bride, that we're a bride and we're going to get married. Now, let's keep that in mind as we read about New Jerusalem. So the New Jerusalem, first of all, is the physical presence of Father on earth. When's the last time that happened? Anyone? Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. Adam and the Father would just walk around and talk about stuff. Adam was completely innocent until sin entered and separation entered. And the next thing you know, we have a relationship through a veil until Jesus comes and makes a way for us to be in the Father. But it's still not a physical relationship with the Father, is it? Anybody taking a walk with the Father, literally, in here? No. Kind of terrifying, isn't it? But we're going to because the Father in the New Jerusalem is going to come on earth and dwell with man, the Father. Just like in the garden. It's almost like he meant to get us back to that whole garden thing in the first place. Except for in the first garden, we were kind of innocent, didn't know what we were doing. Now we're going to do it with knowledge as a full partner, a full bride of Jesus. You with me? See how this whole big picture thing works. Now, so let's read about this. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The Father coming to live on earth with his people. Pretty exciting. Um, there, by the way, this happens. theres I don't even want to get into it because it's kind of complex. It certainly happens at the end of the millennium. looks like at least in some way there's a connection at the beginning of the millennium. Uh, anyway, it's not yet, but it's coming. Uh, it's after Jesus comes. So, Revelation 21, verse 2 through 3. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, why is the city compared to a bride? Maybe John has seen a bride before and go, that's a pretty city. It looks like that one time I saw this pretty girl in her wedding dress. But I think it's more. Okay? So keep that in mind. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He's physically going to dwell with us, right? All right, we're going to look at another passage in Revelation 21. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10, just a few verses later. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plates came to me and talked to me, saying, Come, come. I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Oh, okay. Now we get to see what we look like in our wedding dress, right? This ought to be good. Ready? And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Wait a minute. I thought we were going to see the bride. You're showing me a city. I've already seen that. You said it looked like a bride. Now you're saying... You're me the bride and you show me a city. What's the deal? Is this intriguing you? It intrigues me. Now, I think it's a real city because if you keep reading on, uh, there's real physical descriptions. There's dimensions, there's colors, there's what the gates look like, there's things like that. But is it possible it's more than that? Is it possible? Uh, in this case, I'd say this, the city and the bride are indistinguishable as his dwelling place. If I asked you, here's a Bible quiz. Here we go. Uh, Does God dwell in the new Jerusalem or does he dwell in the bride? What's the answer? Yes. What's that about? One's a city, one's us. And uh, it's neat when all of these things are metaphor, but when they appear to be, you know, some kind of spiritual reality, it sort of messes with our metaphor. And so I'm wondering, is there something more substantial going on here? Uh, the city and the bride, indistinguishable, as His dwelling place. Are we looking at the bride, or are we looking at the new Jerusalem? Yes. Can't fully explain that. But I think there's something intriguing going on here. Are you with me? So... Then, I read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Paul is talking about having been built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophet, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fit together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Just metaphor, right? Think? In whom... You also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Huh. Is it metaphor or is it something more substantial? Is this shared spiritual dwelling place actually some kind of building in the Spirit that's substantial, that God dwells in, that's made up of us? Now, I don't know how to explain that, but it seems like that's going on. And it's making me go back to Jesus talking about my father's house and my father's family or many dwelling places and going, I wonder if I really get what he means. I wonder if I've really entered into this whole dwelling place thing. Maybe there's more than I realized. This is what I'm starting to think. So, is it more substantial than we know? And uh, it leads me to this thought, this question. Because he says, we're being built together for a dwelling place of God. Is recognizing, and I really want you to hear this. This is not just for Church on the Rock. This is for the church. Is recognizing our oneness in him with each other a way bigger deal than we realized? If we're being built together in a dwelling place for God, and we won't come together Does that hinder the dwelling of God? Is that part of the preparation that he's working on for the bride who's made herself ready? Are we actually not in this alone, but in this together? Not just in a we're in this together, kind of we're all going to heaven thing, but we're in this together in we all get the promises together or don't get the promises together. Is that possible? That's what's got me thinking. See, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it sounds very individual. I have the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit. We know there's one Holy Spirit, but we all have it. I don't know how that works, but there you go. And it's really easy for us as Christians to live our, you know, walk out our, our Christian life that way. I'm just going to try and be the best little temple I can be. Right? Try and get the Holy Spirit. I want my river of water. Uh, you know, all the temple, temples have rivers. God's temple has a river of water flowing out of it. I just want my river. Uh, what if our rivers are supposed to flow together into something? Amen. Here's an interesting thing. While we think of that, Jesus, uh, remember we're looking at 14 through 17. Those are the chapters. Uh, those are, that's Jesus' discourse before He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in 17, the whole chapter is a prayer. And he ends the prayer in verses 20 through 23. Maybe you remember praying this. Now, think about this in light of what we've just talked about. Uh, Jesus and the Father. uh, Making way for us to be in the Father. All that stuff. He prays this prayer. He says, God, Father, I pray that they may be one in the same way that I'm in you and you are in me that they may be one like that. That's a wild prayer. What if it's important? And here's something else. Those of you who are English students, I just remember this from high school. I remember whenever I wrote a theme, the theme of my theme was supposed to be in the first paragraph and the last paragraph. Right? Am I right? Because I was more of a math guy, but, you know, I could write a theme. And he begins in chapter 14 with his discourse talking about the dwelling place. And he ends in chapter 17 where he began. Father, I pray that we'll all be together in this dwelling place, that they'll be one in the same way you and I are one. It makes me think maybe it's the theme of the entire paper. And maybe it's a key. Maybe. It's really important that we get this. Not just for us as individuals, but for us as a church. A shared dwelling place. A place where we come together in Him. You following me? It might be that important. Now, that being said, let's go ahead and do a little bit more. And we're going to go more quickly now. In verses 7-11, through uh, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now, now on, you do know him and have seen him. He said, he's basically saying, if you, if you really got this, you'd really get dad too. If you really got me, you'd get dad, because we're one. He says, and from now on, you know him and have seen him, uh, because you've known me and seen me, and, and, for, and uh, you know, don't feel bad, because this happens to us too. For the apostles, it just goes whoosh, right over their heads. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Because he's very excited now. He's talking about the Father. He says, yes, we'd like to see the Father. (laughs) And Jesus goes, "Ah, Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You understand what he's saying? We're one. So he's talking about this thing he began talking about, this dwelling place, this place where the Godhead lives eternally in the house that is called the Father, this spiritual but more substantial than earth dwelling place. And he says, do, do you not I'm sorry, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? That's big. They shared dwelling place. they're in each other. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you do not speak to my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So I want to submit to you that the Father and the Son literally indwell each other and that they didn't get it. They did not grasp it. What are we not grasping about the Holy Spirit? indwelling us, Amen. and us indwelling Jesus and the Father. Perhaps there's more to grasp here. They certainly didn't. Now, we can tell from the way they lived after Acts that they were, getting, they were figuring it out, right? And well, I'll tell you how they could tell in a minute. Now, interestingly, just for fun, the word dwells when he says, my Father who dwells in me is the word meno, uh, which is, means to abide. It's the root word of moneh, In verse 2, where he says, um, in my father's house are many places to abide, Monet. Same word, or the same root. So it's the same concept he's talking about, right? And so they don't get it. It's important, I think, that we realize we got to drill into this. We got to get this. This is core to what he was trying to teach the apostles before he turned over his authority to them and sent them as he had been sent. They needed to get this place of uh, mutual dwelling, this shared spiritual dwelling place of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and now the bride. And so uh, he goes on to say, hey, if you don't believe me just because I'm saying it, believe me because of the works, as if the works are the evidence of the indwelling Father. So he's saying the works prove that the Father's in me. And it should be. The same for us, right? There should be some proof. And to me, I don't want to sound too harsh, but the level of works I see in our church, the church in general, tells me we don't get it yet. Right? Uh, Now, that's not a rebuke. That's an encouragement. Let's get it. Let's figure out what we're not getting. Because the works are supposed to be evidence of the indwelling. And so... It makes me wonder, is grasping our shared dwelling place a key to his works? Is it key? Is it not just you having faith and you having faith and you having faith, but us beginning to grasp the realm of this shared dwelling place as a place where we meet together? Is that somehow key to the works beginning to happen in the church like we see them in the first church? I think it is. I think we need to meditate on this. I think we need to press into this. I think we need to explore, and we will, as we go through these chapters, what it means uh, to be in this dwelling place. And how do we do that? I love Colossians 2 nine and 10 says this. He says, uh, "In him Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the God stuff, all the Godhead, it's all in Jesus." And then In verse 10, it says, and you are complete in him. If we can figure out how to get in him in the way Jesus is talking about in these passages, we will, I think, experience complete, the fullness of God. And so that's that's the goal here is how do we do this? How do we really appropriate? How do we dwell in this place we've been allowed to dwell in? How do we abide there? How do we get there? Uh, And it's a spiritual place, so it's a little intangible. And yet, in some ways, I think it's more tangible than the reality that we see around us. So this is the kind of stuff I'm pondering. And then I I find it interesting that he comes right out of this passage into verses 12 through 14. Most assuredly, I say to you, because he just talked about the works are the evidence of the indwelling Father. And he's making a way for us to dwell in the Father, and for the Spirit to dwell in us. And then he says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That verse bugs me. Does it bug you? Why does it bug you? Yeah, because it looks so simple, and I can't do it. Why can't I do it? And that's a good question. Because it's, I can't even, I don't even have comments in my notes on this verse. I can't make this any simpler than it is. The people in him do the works of God. Anything we ask, he'll do. Any questions? right? And yet, we live so far below that. And so, I don't want to just go, well, you know, maybe God will fix it someday. I want to go, why do we live below that? Maybe it has something to do with this abiding thing. Maybe we don't get this. Maybe we need to press into this. Maybe we need to think more about this abiding thing. Maybe uh, if we do that, We can start to walk in this because when Jesus is saying, remember, he's sending them out with authority. And he's saying, I mean it. I want to send you with authority. I want you to be in the Father, me and you, and and do the works that I do, all of my authority. And we want to be sent that way. And so I wonder if we have tried to uh, do the stuff that we read in the Bible and missed uh, some of the key things about this whole indwelling presence and being in the Godhead and and all this access and and abiding in Him and the things we're going to read in these chapters ahead. it makes me wonder if this whole section of Scripture is really key, uh, us getting this in a deep way, to beginning to see these things happen. And it makes me wonder about this whole house of God being all of us, not just you and me. And maybe there's a together element of this where we have to come together enough. I certainly notice... That when we worship together, we experience more of the presence of God, right? When we all seek to enter into that dwelling place together, uh, something happens. So, again, I find myself standing, looking at this land, going, "I've only, I've only understand the edge of this. I got to go deeper." And I can't even tell you in detail how to do that. Just that we need to do that. So. My goal this morning is, I think, just to provoke us to go deeper in this dwelling place in understanding and in, in just meditate on this. What does it mean? God, show me what it means for the Father uh, and the Son to indwell each other. I don't understand what that kind of unity looks like. Show me what your love for each other looks like. Show me what it means for the Spirit to indwell me in that way. Uh, what does it mean for me to be in the Father, that there's a house, a new Jerusalem that's made up of us and that you're going to indwell it. Uh, Lord, I want an understanding of that. I want an understanding of this real house in the spirit realm that I'm a part of and I want to do my part. These are good prayers, right? And it's way beyond just, you know, help me not sin and get to heaven because there's a house, right? This is part of the preparing To be his bride. Do you understand at some point we're going to live for eternity in the Father who is the dwelling place. In the same way Jesus has been eternally living in the Father who is the dwelling place. I have no idea what that looks like. I am certain it's an upgrade. You with me? So I just want to provoke us. I want to let this verse provoke us. I, I can't do anything more with verse 12 and 14, but go, Lord, I'm not going to ignore this. I'm going to let this provoke me. I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm not going to, you know, try and make other people feel bad about it. I'm just going to let it provoke me. And I got to go deeper in this dwelling place. Now, I love, there are two passages, uh, and I'm ending with this if you want to hand Rachel the mic, uh, that talk about this dwelling place of the Father. Uh, Psalm 91.1, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Psalm 31.20, you will hide me in the secret place of your presence. And there's a reality to those things. There's a place. There's a secret place uh, where we can be hidden from the strife of men in the presence of God. Uh, So, God was talking to Rachel about that recently, so I'll let her wrap up here and then we'll pray. The band, you can start working your way up.
1: I feel like I'm starting to become the color commentator to to the guy who is explaining the plays on the field. Um, I pray in a global prayer room on clubhouse a couple mornings a week, and it's people from all over the country. If anybody's on clubhouse, join the the global prayer room, seven o'clock. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, well, Tuesday as well. Come here Tuesday and Thursday morning. Anyway, um, one morning we were, I was in the prayer room, and they, we were just, everybody was greeting one another, and I had read a headline before I went into the room, and I was distracted by the headline. And so I am not even concentrating on where I'm going in prayer. I am mentally arguing with this headline, which is such a waste of time, because there's literally nothing I can do about it. And the Lord said to me, Rachel you do not understand the power of the secret place. And I was just drawn back because in 2020, Tony and I started really upping our prayer time. And there were days throughout 2020 into 2021, I was in prayer two to three hours a day. And I'm like, huh? He said, you do not understand the power of the secret place because I was wasting my time. And I wasn't taking advantage of my opportunity before him. I wasn't, I was zoning in on a headline of which I would have no influence whatsoever instead of zoning in on my father on whom I would have influence. And I just wanna say that it's in the secret place where we do the very thing that makes us become ready to be the bride. And Tony mentioned we were friends first. We used three years as just flat friends, nothing romantic before we entered into a bridal conversation. We have to be friends of the bridegroom via the secret place before we can enter into the bridal conversation. And maybe that's why we can't do what our, what he ask because we're not in the friend place to be in the bridal place. And it's the secret place that takes us to all of the other places. It's really that simple. You just have to carve it out and so let me tag on before as we go into worship. This morning, when I was in, in here praying before the service, I felt like the Lord said, tell them to circumcise their hearts. I saw a picture of like a heart was just covered in fat. <laughs> and it's circumcising our hearts via the secret place that takes us to the friend place, that takes us to the bride place, that takes us to John 14 place. So as we go into worship, just go before the Lord with that on your hearts. Amen.
0: So, let's stand. Jesus went to the cross to make a way for you to be in the Father. Right? Right? Yes. Who wants to go? Yeah. Now, it might be different for all of us, but let's just go there. Let's just go, God, I see it. Uh, I can be in you. I want to I be in the Father this morning. I want to be in that place. I want to enter into that secret place of your presence. I want to enter into this place of shared fellowship that, that, that God has enjoyed for uh, eons and that you've invited us into and just see what happens. So, Lord, we pray. Lord, we want to know more about this shared dwelling place that you have made for us that is in you and in us and is, uh, and is a house Uh, Somehow, when we come together, Lord, we want uh, to be a place uh, that the Father can dwell in. So, Lord, we just offer ourselves and say, here we come. We come through the veil, the torn veil, the access that Jesus made for us uh, into the Father without shame. Because Jesus made us righteous. Lord, we come. Lord, we come.